take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Today, chapter 4, as we uh, progress through our studies in this letter, we are in chapter 4, picking up in verse 9 and reading and studying together through verse 12. Today, in this passage, we will find another reminder uh, that the Christian faith is not the sort of thing that is a stuffy academic pursuit. Uh, rather, our Christian faith is lived out in our daily lives. Uh, we saw at the end of chapter 3 that Paul was praying that the church would grow and abound in love and that their hearts would be established in holiness. Now, as we've gone through chapter 4, he reverses order, and we saw over the last two weeks the way he was encouraging the church in holiness in terms of sexual matters, and today he will return to the theme of love for one another. Love particularly as it pertains to our calling to work, uh, to live quietly, he says, uh, and to work with our hands so that we may be dependent on no one. This is normal, everyday living, and Paul is going to tell us that it has something to do with the way that we love one another. And so this is what we'll see together today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we read verses 9 through 12. And before we read those words, let's go to the Lord together and seek his mercy and his encouragement in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, as we turn to your living word, we pray that you would cause us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, so that by your word we may have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the fruit that leads to eternal life. We pray, Lord, that you would do this this in us, but we cannot do it for ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Love is a many-splendored thing. It is the April rose that only grows in the early spring. Love's nature's way of giving a reason to be living, the golden crown that makes a man a king. And once, on a high and windy hill in the morning mist, two lovers kissed and the world stood still. Then your fingers touched my silent heart and taught it how to sing. Yes, love is a many-splendored thing. Now, such is love, according to Frank Sinatra. Uh, and I think in our, our wider cultural mind, when we think of love in its 
most uh, developed sense, when we think of the epitome of real love, probably what we think of is something like Sinatra's romantic love. The kind of love that makes the world stand still, makes your knees go weak, makes your heart do backflips. But then there's another song that gives us another view. A different presentation of love, somehow just as sweet, though. So Tevya asks Goldie that all-consuming question. Do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? You might remember the exchange, a bit of back and forth, and then Goldie sings, For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. For 25 years I've lived with him, fought him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Now, love is one of those tricky words. It can mean almost everything or almost nothing, depending on how you use it. I love my wife. I love her meatloaf. I love my kids. I love when their rooms are clean. I love a warm fire on a cold November morning. And I love my brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus loved us and made us one family together. Sure, but how does that love show up? Does it live primarily in a feeling, or does it show up in the work of our hands? Does it show up in a love that makes the world stand still, or does it show up in something steadier, something perhaps less spectacular? Does real Christian love sound more like Frank Sinatra or more like Fiddler on the Roof? Now, Paul is going to teach us today about the character of Christian love. And as we go through this passage, you might be surprised by some of the conclusions that he comes to, but you probably will not be at all surprised with where he begins. In fact, the first thing that Paul teaches us about love between believers is that Christians learn love from God himself. That's where our love for one another comes from as believers. We don't love one another because of naturally gracious dispositions. Maybe you do, but I don't. Right? As Christians, we don't love one another because we've discovered through trial and error that that is the most efficient way of building a community. We love one another because love is what God has taught us. Christians learn love from God himself. This is what Paul tells us in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Probably for many of us, the first thing we think of when we think of God teaching us is the blessing of instruction that he's given us in his written word. That's, of course, one of the ways that God teaches his people. God is a God of revelation. God is the God who spoke through his prophets and spoke through his apostles. And as we gather each week, we open our Bibles and we can actually hear God speaking to us his prophetic apostolic word through the pages of our Bibles. God certainly has taught the church to love one another through his written revelation. And so Paul does this cheeky thing, right, where he says, You have no need for anybody to write to you about this, and yet here he is writing. 
You don't need anybody to instruct you about these things. And he reminds them, this is what we instructed you. You don't need anybody to tell you. And then he says, all that stuff, do it a little bit more. So you could trace through the verses also that we've already studied and find that when Paul is teaching the church, he emphasizes over and over again that the word that he brings them isn't really his own word, but it's the word of God. That's what he said earlier in chapter 2, verse 13. He says it was the word of God that was at work among believers. And so when Paul says that the church has learned love from God, he probably at least on one level means that they've learned it from his written word. And this isn't something that you only find in the New Testament. Christian love wasn't invented in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You could find it in Leviticus, of all places. That very serious book of regulations and sacrifices and laws for God's people. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, there is a connection. If you know what it is to be God's people, then you know what it is to be called to love one another. God teaches us to love one another through his written word. But it's also true that God teaches us to love one another through the example of his son. Remember, God hasn't only spoken through his apostles and his prophets. Hebrews tells us that God has also spoken in these last days through the person of his Son. God has taught us through the words that Jesus said, and he has taught us through the example that Jesus left. And in fact, the the great word that Jesus has given to his church is that we should learn to love the way he loved us. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. So we learn love according to Christ's example. We're called to love after the pattern of his love. What was his love like? Well, it was sacrificial love. Jesus loved us by laying aside his heavenly glory. Jesus loved us by giving up his earthly rights. Jesus loved us by offering his life as a substitute for sinners. Jesus loved us, according to the words in Philippians, by counting others as more significant than himself. And now we are to love one another in the same way. You can be sure that when Paul came to the Thessalonians and he preached the gospel to them, even if they had never heard a word of Leviticus, he taught them to love one another through teaching them the example of Jesus Christ. That's because everywhere that Paul went, he preached Christ and preached him crucified. Everywhere that Paul went, he preached Jesus as the Savior of sinners, the one who laid down his life as a sacrifice and as an example. That's why Paul thanked the Lord all the way back in chapter 1 for the church's faith and hope and love in the Lord Jesus. Because they already knew what the gospel was about. They had already heard what Christ had done for their salvation. And now, by God's grace, they were not only believing in Jesus and hoping in Jesus, but they were also loving like he loved as well. So it means, yes, we learn love by God himself, and he teaches us that love 
through his word, and he teaches us that love through the example of his son. But here, especially in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, I think Paul has in mind the way that God teaches us love through the work of his Holy Spirit. Read it again. Verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul sets up a contrast. More writing is not what you need, he says, because you've already received something better, if we can call it that. You don't need just another parchment. You don't need just another scroll. You don't need just some extra commandment to describe what love should look like. You don't need more external teaching because God has already written his love on your lives from the inside out. John Calvin said that God's love had been engraven upon their hearts. In other words, the teaching that Paul is talking about is the teaching that comes to the internal, personal, powerful, immediate work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just the teaching of our minds, it's the shaping of our wills. It's learning that shows up in the fruits of love that grow out of the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of his people. How does Paul know that? Verse 10 tells us. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He says, I know that God has taught you love, not because you can repeat the lesson, but because you're already putting it into practice. A strange way of saying it. He says, love is what you're doing to one another. The emphasis there is that it's actually happening. Not some little feeling in the corner of their heart that makes the world stand still. Right? But it shows up in their hands and their gifts and the encouragement they give to one another. It probably showed up in the kind of sacrificial generosity that the believers in Thessalonica were already becoming known for. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is writing to the church there in Corinth because he's making up a collection. He's gathering funds from all of the churches to support those who were in need back in Judea. And he writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You hear what he's saying there. The believers in Macedonia, that includes Thessalonica, the believers there were eager to take part in providing for other Christians, even though they themselves were suffering through their own poverty. They scraped together what they could and what they had. They worked as hard as they were able to provide for themselves and just a little bit more to send to someone else. Just like their Savior before them, they were considering, considering others more significant than themselves. Just like Jesus, they looked not only to their own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. And Paul says it's a matter of the grace of God. It's not the sort of thing that that just can be learned by reading words about love on a page. Love like that was evidence of God's grace. It was proof that the love of Jesus was active in their souls. And this has always been the promise that God had for his people in Christ Jesus. All the way back in the New Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31, God spoke of the day that he would put his law within his people. When he would write his statutes on the tablets of their hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord declared that one day he would put his spirit within his people. He would cause them to walk in his statutes. It's both a foretaste of what Paul said and what he wrote in Romans chapter 5 verse 5. He said, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Quite frankly, if you're a Christian, none of this is new to you. You already know this. You know how God teaches love to his people because he's taught you the same way that he taught the Thessalonians. He's given you his word to show you what love should look like. He's given you his son to love you into life with him. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to replicate the pattern of love in your life from the inside out. And so you, believers, have no need for anyone to preach to you about what it means to learn the love of God. You've already learned it. You already trust what Paul is teaching the church, that Christians learn love from God himself. But that's where the confusion sets in. Because here we are talking about these very lofty things. Love and salvation and the work of God's Spirit in the lives of His people. And that sounds very spectacular. And we expect that when love shows up in our lives, it should look pretty spectacular too. And sometimes it does. Sometimes the Lord puts you in a position where you're able to give a fantastic gift, able to love someone in a way that overflows, that that other people can see it, even though you're not looking for that sort of glory from other people. Sometimes your heart is warmed when you get to serve other people and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not always what love looks like. So the second thing that Paul teaches us about Christian love here is that more often Christian love shows up in quiet labor. Christian love shows up in quiet labor. It means that brotherly love is the kind of thing that takes effort. It takes persistence. It means that being a Christian who rubs shoulders with other Christians sometimes is a lot of hard work. It's the kind of thing that isn't always going to leave us feeling very important or feeling very recognized, or feeling very congratulated, and that's okay. In fact, that's how it's supposed to be. Christian love shows up in quiet labor. Paul says it it takes shape in three pretty unspectacular pursuits. First, he says, uh, verse 11, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. Love shows up in aspiring to live quietly. There's an aspiration that's not going to get you very far in the eyes of the world. 
Most people take their lives and their plans for the future and they aspire to something big, something impressive. We start very young. We tell our children, you can be anything you want to be. Nobel-winning scientists and fighter pilots and CEOs and the President of the United States, you can do anything you want to do. Set your aspirations high, and Paul seems to be saying, maybe aim a little lower if you're a believer. Aspire to a quiet life. Aspire to an untroubled life. Aspire to a life without controversy, without drama. It sounds almost like the opposite of aspiration. And so one of the older New Testament paraphrases translated verse 11 by saying, make it your ambition to have no ambition. That's catchy, but it's not very good, actually. If we talk about living our Christian lives without ambition, it almost sounds like what Paul is telling us to do is just to phone it in, right? Be, be sort of half-connected, half-engaged, and, and just make your way through life waiting for good things in the future to fall into your lap. When I was in high school, I went with my youth group on a tubing trip down a river in central Pennsylvania. Not kayaking, not canoeing, tubing, as in no paddles needed, go with the flow and see where it takes you. And it was fun for an afternoon, but it's not the way that we should approach our Christian lives. And Paul's not telling us that we should just float into whatever God brings our way. No, Paul says we should aspire to live quietly, but he doesn't mean living without pursuits. He means pursuing contentment. Paul's already given the church an example of what this quiet living looked like, I think. Take a look back in chapter 2, verses 5 and, and 7. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were gentle among you, he says. Quiet by another name. Not seeking fame or self-importance. Content like a mother nursing her own child just to keep on serving without glory for herself. And whether it's parenting, or whether it's work, or whether it's the church, or whether it's school, or whatever it might be, if you've ever tried to serve like that, you know what an uphill climb it can be. Right? Our pride is thirsty for attention. Our brains are wired for achievement. Our egos cry out to be recognized by somebody, anybody, somebody please recognize me. It means that contentment with our place and our work is not just the sort of thing that happens. So Paul says you need to aspire for this. You need to strive for it. You need to yearn for a life of service even when no one recognizes you. That's what love looks like in the church. It shows up in quiet living. It also shows up in minding our own business. How's that for practical theology? Paul says, you want to know what the Christian life of love looks like? 
Mind your own affairs. It's love that doesn't go meddling in other people's business. It's love that doesn't judge other Christians for the choices that they make when those choices are within the bounds of Christian liberty. It is love that knows the difference between a prayer request and a juicy piece of gossip. It is love that Richard Phillips says knows when to keep its mouth shut. I like that one. Love that minds its own affairs. That's probably, at least in part, what it means to mind your own affairs. But I think beyond telling us not to have an unhealthy concern with what other Christians are doing, Paul's also trying to tell us not to have an unhealthy concern with what other Christians have. It's the context that gives it away. Here's Christ's apostle, and he's teaching the church about our Christian love for one another, and it shows up in providing for practical needs. Here's Paul talking about living quietly and working hard and providing for yourself so that you won't take advantage of the church's charity. And it only makes sense in that context that when he tells us to mind our own affairs, he's probably talking about our possessions as well. In fact, if my hunch is correct, if if this call to quietness really is about contentment, then this command to mind our own affairs is a connected thought. It's probably a warning against the ever-present temptation to envy what God has given to someone else. Envy, of course, is one of the easiest ways to fall out of love with our brothers and our sisters. I did it all the time with my brother growing up. Dessert is placed on the table in two very similar-looking sized portions. And yet, what do we do? We eye one another up, and we try to determine which slice is just a little bit bigger. Am I being treated fairly? Have I gotten my fair share? Have I gotten enough? Have I gotten more than he's gotten? It's a good way to ruin our Christian communion, too. It's an excellent way to demotivate our Christian service. So long as we're looking around at everybody else's portion, trying to see if we've got more than they do, we will never be content loving them enough to make sure they have what they need. So Paul says love shows up in living quietly. He says it shows up in minding our own business. Thirdly, he says it shows up in working diligently. Work with your own hands, he says. This is the one that makes the most sense to us, I think. But this was also the one that was the most controversial for the people in Thessalonica. That is because, in the Greek mind, manual labor was something that was to be avoided at all costs. Of course, you couldn't actually completely avoid manual labor. This is the first century. There are no computers There's no automation. There is nothing digital at all. You can't completely avoid manual labor in the pre-industrial age, but so far as the Greeks were concerned, manual labor was something for slaves. Manual labor was what the lower classes did, and if you wanted to be any kind of somebody in Greek culture, you found someone else to do your manual labor for you. Oh, not Paul the tent maker. Not Paul, the Apostle Christ, who preached about the crucified carpenter's son. There is no disdain for working hard and manual labor in Christian theology. 
And so Paul told them very bluntly to work with their hands. He wasn't elevating handwork over brain work. Right? He wasn't saying that manual labor is better because it's analog and, and non-manual labor is worse because it's digital. That's not what he was getting at. Probably in the Thessalonian church, many of the Christians were slaves. Probably, as it did everywhere else that the gospel went forth in the Roman world, it took hold among the lower classes first. And Paul's telling them, don't worry about where God has placed you and what he's given you to do and the fact that it doesn't seem very spectacular in the eyes of the world. Here's a society in different ways, but similar to ours. Here was a society bound by constructs like status and social standing and social honor and class. And Paul is saying, do not be too proud to do the job the Lord has given you. Don't look beside you and wish that you had what somebody else has. Don't look above you and wish that you were where somebody else is. Keep your eyes focused on what God has given you. Keep working diligently with the skills and the place and the calling he's provided and leave your standing up to the Lord. I told you it was unspectacular. Living quietly and working diligently and minding your own business and Christian love shows up in quiet labor. Well, at first glance, it might not make sense how all those things add up to love for our fellow Christians. What does that have to do with the way that we love one another? Well, it comes down, I think, to what we could call the economics of Christian love. It's an economical issue. And from a secular perspective, Thomas Sowell defines economics as the study of the allocation of scarce resources with alternative uses. There's a mouthful. The study of the allocation of scarce resources with alternative uses. In simple terms, it means we don't have limitless stuff. We need to make choices about the things that we have. We need to make decisions about the resources God has given us. And if we're wise, we'll use those resources wisely. And if we're foolish, we'll hoard those resources. Or we'll waste those resources. Or we'll construct some system that we can gain so that, so that we can get more for ourselves and leave people who don't have enough not having enough. Well, love in the church works the same way. Of course, all God's people have physical needs. In God's providence, sometimes God's people have more needs than others. And again, God's people have abilities. They have resources. They have varying capacities to be productive or to be generous or to be charitable with what God has given them. And there are at least two unwise and unloving ways of using the resources God has given to his church. One way is to hoard those resources. To work hard for ourselves, to, to provide something better for us so that we can climb our ladder of aspiration and achievement and then refuse to give to our brothers and sisters who are in need. That's one unloving way of using our resources. The other unloving way is to waste our resources, to waste the church's resources. 
to spend the church's effort providing for people who can provide for themselves until there's nothing left over for those who really can't. John Stott put it this way. He says, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need. But it's also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. It's the economics of Christian love. The allocation of scarce resources with alternative uses. Making decisions about the resources God has given us. Working diligently and living quietly and minding our own business so as not to put a burden on the church that needs to provide for those in need. So Christians learn love from God himself. And even though it doesn't seem spectacular, that love shows up in quiet labor. And God has designed it that way with a reason. Because our work shows the world what God's love is like. That's the final lesson we find about Christian love in this passage. That our work shows the world what God's love is like. After all of this God-taught quiet labor, Paul says there's a purpose. Verse 12, do these things, increase in them, he says, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The first question we need to ask is, what does it mean to walk properly before outsiders? It sounds an awful lot like what Paul said back in verse 1 when he told us that we ought to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. There he meant that we have to live according to God's standard. His holiness should set the tone for our holiness. His pleasure should be our guiding principle. Okay, well what about walking before outsiders? What is the standard that defines whether we're walking properly or whether we're walking improperly? Some commentators, some pastors suggest that the standard of proper walking is the standard of the world. At least so far as it concerns things that don't jeopardize our faith. Matters of indifference, you might call them. So some scholars make this out to be about pragmatic instruction. A way that God's people can avoid unnecessary controversy. You may remember That when Paul and his friends preached in Thessalonica, the whole city was turned upside down. Angry mobs came and dragged Jason and his family before the magistrates. They charged them with subversion. And it means that the church in Thessalonica was living in the crosshairs of public scrutiny. And some suggest that Paul was giving them all of this quiet labor just as a way to keep their heads down a way to avoid attracting more attention to themselves than they absolutely need to. And that's probably one application we can take. There are probably some practical lessons that God's people can draw on, what it means to live under oppression and surveillance. And we prayed for our brothers and sisters in North Korea today, and maybe this is exactly how it should be applied there for them. The problem is, that these verses are not here to teach us how to stay out of trouble. These verses are here to show us how to grow in love. Paul did not write these words so that we would learn to keep our heads down. 
Paul wrote these words so that we would care for one another in Christ. And in that context, in the context of love for one another, Paul says there's a way of walking before outsiders that is proper. Not proper according to the world's standards, because our standard hasn't changed between verse 1 and verse 12. We still ought to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So how do we do that? How do we walk in a way that's proper before outsiders and pleasing to the Lord? Well, you know, this language about walking before outsiders shows up in one other place in Paul's letters in the New Testament. It shows up at the end of Colossians. Turn with me just one page back in your Bibles. Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. This is a series of verses. Paul is closing out his argument and his letter to the Colossians, and he urges them to pray for the presentation of the gospel message before unbelievers. Verse 3, he says, Pray for us also, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Verse 4, he says, Pray for us, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Pray for my preaching, Paul is saying. Pray that the word of Christ will go out into the world. Pray for my apostolic evangelistic ministry. And then in verse 5, he turns to the church's evangelistic ministry. What does he say? Conduct yourselves wisely. The word is walk. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. You pray for my speech, Paul says. You watch your speech as well. Walk properly. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. It's about getting the gospel into the world, isn't it? It's a parallel to what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians. It comes down to speaking or living or working or loving in a way that answers the questions that the world has about us when they say, what are those Christians up to anyway? It's interesting, isn't it, that in in both of these places, what Paul calls those who are not part of the church. He does not call them unbelievers. He does not call them non-Christians. He doesn't call them Gentiles or heathens or idol worshipers. Paul calls them outsiders. Those who are not a part of the family of God. Those who have not been brought in to God's heavenly kingdom. And that's the main distinction, isn't it? You're going to hear a lot of talk out in the world about slicing humanity up into all of its different intersectional categories. But when it comes down to our fellowship with God, there are really just two kinds of people. There are insiders and there are outsiders. There are the redeemed and there are the reprobate. There are the children of God by the grace of adoption and there are the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the insiders, like you, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the insiders have been taught by God how to love one another. The insiders are those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he's loved you enough to save your souls by the work of his hands. 
But you know, the outsiders haven't learned that lesson. The outsiders haven't received that love. The outsiders have never tasted the charity of the Lord. And it might just be that all that the outsiders ever learn about the way God loves his people is by seeing the way that God's people love one another. That's what Jesus said, wasn't it? John chapter 13, verse 34, we already read it. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, that you are to love one another. And then the next verse, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, he says, if you have love for one another. And Paul's saying that those of you who are inside, you've been taught by God. You already know how to love one another. We might push back against it because it doesn't always feel romantic. But you know what it looks like. You've experienced it. He's saying, now grow in it. Now pursue it. Now persist in that quiet, diligent love that works hard to have something to give to your brothers and sisters in need. Why? Because by God's grace, our work shows the world what his love is like. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious, glorious Lord, we thank you for the love of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross of Calvary. We thank you that we spiritually are impoverished and, and, and outsiders, and yet you have sent him who is rich to become poor for us, that we by his poverty might receive your riches. You made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Oh Lord, we praise you for this glorious exchange whereby you give us an inheritance that we did not earn. Oh Lord, we thank you for the charity of your love. We pray that by your spirit you would cause us to work it out in daily working and quiet living in ways that don't always feel very important. But looking to Christ Jesus and pursuing the example that he left for us, help us to love one another so that the world may see how you have loved us. We pray in Jesus' name.